I thank you that we again have the opportunity to study this glorious hymn in Philippians. Lord, may we, may we see the glory of your risen Son as we study this morning. May we be astonished by him. May we be amazed by him. May we be humbled by him. And may we seek to give him all glory. Amen. Amen. Okay. So we have been for a very long time in this small section in Philippians chapter 2, stretching from verse 6 through to verse 11, which is um, the way it's structured, the way it's put together seems to be a hymn. I don't know if Paul wrote that hymn himself, whether it was a hymn that had been written by the early church and Paul was simply familiar with it. Um, I kind of like the idea of Paul as a hymn writer. I like, I like to think that he might have written it himself. But regardless, it's one of the most glorious passages and we spent a lot of weeks going through it. And God willing, this will be our last one. So let's just remind ourselves of the hymn. Um, he's talking in context about us as Christians having the right attitude, having the same mind, a phrase he's repeated multiple times, that we think with regards to one another the same way. I think that you're more important than me, and you think that I'm more important than you. That's how church works. And that we have this love that Christ has shown us that we show one to another. That we have an empathy that is characterized by affection because we care for one another like a family. And he summarizes that in verse 5 by saying, have this mind, the same mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So think this way as Christ has thought this way. And here he now, with this hymn from verse 6, paints the picture of how Christ has lived to be the model for how we should live. And he says this, he says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I'm not going to redo the, all the sermons of the last four or five weeks, but simply suffice to say that being in the form of God makes him God. As much as the Father is God, the Son is God. There in eternity past, we have the Father, we have the Son, they're distinct, but they're one God. And as much as the Father is God, the Son is God. Because God the Father has the form of God and God the Son has the form of God. But here's the key thing. Though he had the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be clung onto. So there is the Father and Son, eternity past, equal, in glory. And the Son was prepared to humble himself and leave behind that glory, that glory, that equality practically, that, that equality that was his by right in the form of God, was not something he felt he had to keep. He let go of that. He let go of it so that he could be humbled. Look how he was humbled. Next verse. But he made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself. He took that glory and left it aside. He emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
We who are men, we who are people, men and women, we are servants of God. We were created to worship him, to serve him, to bring him glory. And Christ wasn't created, let alone created to give glory to God. He is God to whom the glory should be given. He is the creator who created us. And yet he took the form of a servant because he became a man. He always was in the form of God, but at a point in history, he took the form of a man. In the beginning was the Word, John says, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word, Christ, was God. But then he goes on to say that the Word became, he wasn't before, he became flesh. He was always God, but a point in history he became a man. He took the form of a man, a servant of God. He was God, and yet he takes the form of a servant of God. How can that even be? The likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the Son... His humility, his humbling, him going down is seen in the fact that even John's Gospel, chapter 14, he says that the Father is greater than I. Well, hold on a second, John. You told us at the beginning of your Gospel that in the beginning, there's the Word. The Word is with God and the Word is God. You're saying that there, in the beginning, that the Word was with the Father that they were there one together. One isn't greater than the other. So how come by chapter 14, Jesus is saying in John's Gospel, the Father is greater than I? Because he's emptied himself of his omnipotence, of, of his omniscience, of his glory. He's put it aside. He's emptied himself willingly. And he is obedient to the Father, like a servant, a form of a servant, a man. And he comes and he shows us the obedience to God that we should be living. Even to the point of death on a cross. For our sakes, for our sins, he humbles himself and he dies. Therefore... Oh, you love these bits when they shift, you know. Humbled, humbled, humbled. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him. There's the Father and the Son in eternity past. They're exalted. The Son loses that exaltation. He humbles himself. Now, the Son is going to be highly exalted, super exalted, ultra exalted. Because he was prepared to let go of his glory and be humbled, he is going to receive a glory beyond and above the former glory. Highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And we spoke about this last time, about how it, you know all of creation... Those who are alive, those who are dead, those who are humans, those who are part of the angelic realm, including the fallen angelic realm, Satan and his demons, that all of creation 
Humans who have submitted to Christ in life and humans who have rejected Christ in life. That everybody at the name of Jesus will bow the knee and confess. And what will they confess? They will confess Jesus is Lord. We're going to talk about that at the end today. But then we spoke last time about how now the Father has allowed the Son to be humbled. He is exalting, highly exalting the Son, even above Him, the name above all names. And what does the Father get from this high exaltation, this super exaltation of Christ? The Father receives glory. Because in exalting Christ, He has humbled Himself. You see the pattern? And this is the picture that Paul is creating, that you and I need to live in such a manner that we trust the sovereignty of God so that we will humble ourselves, we'll allow other people to treat us badly, we'll allow other people to, to, um, to hurt us, we won't seek revenge, we will love people who don't love us, we will do everything as we should, because even in the worst case of scenarios, when we lose out in every single way, shape and form, we know that we believe in a God who has a history, has a principle, of taking those who've humbled themselves for his sake and exalting them. And so we trust him. Now, that's just where we're up to. <laughs> this is where it gets really good now. Okay? Let's talk about highly exalted. When Paul says that Jesus is going to be, is, therefore God has highly exalted him, Okay, this high exaltation of Christ. This is not something that Paul just came up with. It's not something that is new revelation to Paul. I want you to turn with me, and we're going to be doing lots of turning today, so keep your Bibles limber. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. If you need a Bible, by the way, most of the pews have them in front. But Isaiah 6 is a well-known passage. It is the calling of Isaiah. The first five chapters of the book of Isaiah serve to be a, um, a kind of foundation, a preview, if you like, a, a setting of the scene. And really the story of Isaiah kicks in in chapter 6. And he says specifically that it was the year that King Uzziah died. So we, 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 we're, we're putting this event in history. This is not some weird thing that, that Isaiah can't really remember or fog. You know, this happened here and then. You know, this is a point in history. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. He sees God exalted. Now, I know you know, we're talking about Jesus in Philippians 2. So I, you know where I'm going with this to some degree, okay? But from Isaiah's reader's perspective, let's play along, shall we? This is what we call progressive revelation. Now, I don't know, I know that you have different artists 
that were part of many of your childhood in TV in America. We had a different guy in England, and you won't probably have heard of him. But these kind of artists that would draw something, and the guy we had in England, he would draw something, and he would like splatter some paint and make a few lines, and it would look like a total mess. And his catchphrase was, do you know what it is yet? Do you know, it was Australian, he goes, do you know what it is yet? Do you know what it is yet? And he'd, and he'd do a little bit more, and you go, I can't see it. And eventually, it would just be this wonderful picture that he made. And it would just, he's progressively building up the picture until you can see it completely. Now, this is, what we're going to see this morning is progressive revelation. So let's be naive. Let's forget Philippians 2. Let's forget Jesus for now. Let's think from Isaiah's perspective. He sees God. He sees the Lord. He sees the Lord on a throne, exalted, high, and lifted up. Now, you can already see some of the words there are what we're seeing in Philippians 2. But Isaiah is seeing God high and lifted up, and he sees God's glory. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Oh, and I'd love to have time to go through that with you. But we are going to be doing Isaiah when we finish Mark in the evenings. And we'll have plenty of time for all of that. But one of them called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth crucial, is full of his glory. So Isaiah is not just seeing a vision of God, okay? Because Isaiah is seeing something that hasn't happened yet. How do I know that? I know that because Isaiah is preaching to a bunch of hard-hearted, stubborn Israelites who don't want to follow God. And that's why he says, when he gets a little bit later on in the chapter, to... Um, uh, verses 9, 10, 11 and on, how God is, is, sees them as blind and as deaf. And these are verses that are quoted routinely by the Gospel writers. We've seen it several times in our studies in Mark's Gospel, the quoting from Isaiah 6. No, Isaiah is preaching to a world that is not full of the glory of God. But he sees a vision of a throne and God on the throne and high and lifted up and the whole of the earth is filled with the glory of God. Isaiah sees how it's going to be. The Lord of hosts, by the way, means Lord of armies, the mighty warrior God. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. This is exactly what happened, by the way, when the, when the glory and the presence of God came into the completed tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. It's exactly what happened in 1 Kings and chapter 7 when the presence and the glory of God entered the completed temple when Solomon had finished it. This is the presence of God. And Isaiah knows what's going to happen now. What happens when you see God? Moses was told, you cannot see me or else you'll die. So Isaiah says, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, 
Yahweh of hosts. This is very important for our study this morning, okay? When it says Lord of hosts in verse 3, when it says it again here in the lips of Isaiah in verse 5, Lord in your Bibles is going to be in capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is your English translation telling you that it is a translation of the Hebrew word which we think is pronounced something along the lines of Yahweh, which is the very name of God. Okay? So Isaiah has seen the Lord, Yahweh, God himself. And the earth is going to be filled one day with his glory. And then you have the seraphim giving a call to Isaiah to give him salvation. This is crucial. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is setting up the entire theme of the entire book of Isaiah. I've got to be careful not to go ahead with Isaiah here. We've got Isaiah coming up next year. We're looking forward to that. But, but this is setting up the whole book because when Isaiah sees the glory of Yahweh, he sees the holiness of God and the presence of God. He falls down before the presence of God and he is aware of his own uselessness, his sinfulness, his nothingness. But God in his presence reaches out to Isaiah and gives that unclean man salvation. And the whole book of Isaiah is about what happened to Isaiah in that vision. It didn't actually happen because he's seeing something in the future. It's a vision. But how that's going to come about. What happens to Isaiah in the vision is Isaiah sees how glorious God is. And when he sees the glory of God, he realizes who he is in light of that. It's one of my purposes in the sermon today, that we see who we are in light of who God is. And then he sees that woe is him, and he sees the need to be saved. And God provides the means for him to be saved. And as Isaiah goes through his book, he starts to tell us about the one who's going to be sent, who's going to establish a kingdom. He tells us about the one who's going to come, and eventually he tells us the one who is going to come is not just going to come in glory to fill the earth with the glory which Isaiah saw, but that beforehand that same one is going to come and he's going to be rejected, and he's going to suffer, and he's going to die, not for his own sins, but for the sins of other people, like Isaiah, looking back to chapter 6. That's how God saves. So Isaiah has this amazing vision, but he wasn't the only one who had it. In Ezekiel chapter 1, and you can turn there if you want, but we'll be here much briefer. And Ezekiel looks and he sees a stormy wind come out of the north and a great cloud, and a fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it there came the likeness of four living creatures. And he tells us a little bit about these creatures, uh, these angelic beings. And, uh, and then he says in verse 13, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. 
See the link here with Isaiah. We have angelic beings, we now have coals as well, and the appearance of torches moving fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro. Now I looked at the living creatures, and I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. And so we have a kind of chariot-like uh, vision here and appearance. And he goes on, and uh, I won't spend much time in this, but there are enough things here for us to see the link, the linkage between this and Isaiah's vision. When Isaiah sees the glory of God, he sees living creatures. He sees seraphim. He sees angelic beings as well. There, are, there is fire. There is burning coal. And while Isaiah's focus setting up the whole book of Isaiah, is more about the salvation that Isaiah has. Here in Ezekiel 1, there's far more focus on the glory of God, the presence of God, and the Spirit of God. And Ezekiel will then use that vision as the foundation for his whole book, where he tells us about the need for the Holy Spirit to come. And the glory of God, the presence of God to come through the Holy Spirit. But the ancients, the, the people of that era, understood the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 and the vision of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1 to be the same vision. The vision of the glory of God filling the earth. The vision of what is to come. And Isaiah links it to the giving of the Spirit. Now let's turn to one more. Daniel chapter 7. We'll spend a little bit more time here. Daniel 7. Now with Daniel, he gets a bigger vision. And his vision contains far more things. He's getting a vision regarding different kingdoms and how the kingdoms of the earth are going to change. You've got to remember Daniel's context. Daniel has now come after Isaiah, after Jeremiah, who prophesied that Israel will be judged for its sin. The judgments come. Israel has been taken into captivity in Babylon. And Daniel is now in Babylon, in captivity, and there is these shifting tides. Israel thought, we're God's people. Nothing's going to happen to us. And now they're in Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians were like, huh, we've just conquered Yahweh. Because that's how they viewed it. They didn't just conquer the Jews. Their God conquered the Jewish God. We've conquered Yahweh. We're, we're top dogs. Nothing's going to happen to us. And then, of course, the Persians come in and take over the Babylonians. Funnily enough, we, we live in a time where people here think America's going to exist forever. No, it's not. No nation will. So Daniel is reminded of the rising and falling of kingdoms. And in the midst of that, he looks in verse 9. And as I looked, he says, Daniel 7 verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed. There's our first link to Isaiah 6, the throne. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels, there's your link to Ezekiel, were burning fire. A stream of fire, another link to Ezekiel, came out from before him, and thousands, thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This is God. God the judge sits on his throne in his glory. 
And then I looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burnt with fire. That's to do with end times. It's to do with the rest of the vision. We're going to skim over that. But listen to verse 12. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So it's talking about kingdoms. Who is giving and prolonging? Who gives dominion? Who takes dominion? It's God. God is sovereign. Now look at verse 13. This is where it gets interesting. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now what's really interesting, as we go through these little bits of progressive revelation, Isaiah sees God high and lifted up. Ezekiel sees God and his glory. And Ezekiel is referred to by God when God, you know, after Isaiah has his vision, he's sent out by God. After Ezekiel has his vision, he's sent out by God. And when Ezekiel's sent out by God, God calls Ezekiel a name. He says to him, son of man. Because Ezekiel, like Isaiah, had seen the glory of God and thus was reminded who he was. <coughs> You're not God. You don't have glory. You're just the son of a man. You're a human. You're in human form. You have human likeness. That's who you are, Ezekiel. You're my servant. You're in the form of a servant. See, I'm linking here to Philippians 2 again. But that's who Ezekiel was. And now, and this is really interesting, in the night visions... I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, so there in the glory, there came one like a son of man. Now, is this the ancient of days that he's just seen in the midst of glory? No, because he came to the ancient of days. So Daniel has just seen someone who looks to be in human form, who is in the presence of God, the Ancient of Days, who is the judge who opens the book. Two distinct people. Two distinct people. One of them is God, and one of them is like a son of man, looks human, like Ezekiel before him. Right? So this is just the guy, right? This is just a guy like Ezekiel. Look at the next verse. And to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like something that should happen to the Ancient of Days? And yet that's being given to the one who is like a son of man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It's never going to pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Isn't that confusing? How we've gone from God being high and lifted up to now, in fact, as Daniel sees this same vision, Ezekiel saw the vision, he saw the glory of God, he saw the Spirit in the midst of that vision, and Daniel now sees the same vision, the same scene with the throne, and Daniel sees more clearly, and he sees that there are, in fact, two people in the midst of glory. There is God, Yahweh. 
But there is also one who is like a man, like a son of man. And it is that one that Isaiah saw high and lifted up. It's that one who sits on the throne. It's that one who gets the kingdom. It's that one who gets the glory. It's the one like a son of man. Now, let's turn to Acts chapter 9. Just because I like you turning to different books, you know? Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is one of the stories of the Bible that we're so familiar with and yet we know so little of. It is the conversion of the man that we know as the Apostle Paul. The conversion of Saul. By the way, he didn't change his name when he became a Christian. He was a Jewish man. They typically had two names. They had a Jewish name and a Gentile name. And when he started on his mission to the Gentiles, that's when he went more by his Gentile name, Paul. His Jewish name was Saul. But anyway, Saul, verse 1 of chapter 9, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he, be found, if, if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So what's he doing? He's getting permission to arrest anybody who's a Christian. Why? Because he is a Jew of the Jews. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. We're going to see this in chapter 3 of Philippians. We're going to come to this. But Paul was the best of the Pharisees. He was trained under the greatest trainer of Pharisees. He was the, the bright, shining light of Pharisaism. And now this Jesus has come along, and he's pointedly said, nothing to do with Pharisaism. I am the way. Paul's not happy. Now, you may not know much about Pharisees, but let me tell you this. The Pharisees knew their Bibles. What do you mean they knew their Bibles? They, they, they could quote a couple of verses here and there. No, no, no. There's a friend of mine, there's a guy called Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who's actually coming here in November to do a conference. We're going to have Arnold here for a conference in November, um, which is forthcoming. And Arnold is, comes from an ultra-Orthodox Jewish background, really, really strict. His grandfather was still of an era where they did the nail test. And the nail test was where they would take a Bible, their Bible, Jewish Bible, in Hebrew, the old, what we call the Old Testament in Hebrew, and they would take it, and they would get the Bible, and they'd get a nail, and they'd get a hammer, and they'd hammer a nail into the Bible. And wherever that nail went to, they'd open it up, find where it was, and say, go. And the person would have to quote in the original Hebrew, from that part of the Bible. That's how well they knew their Bible. So I just want you to know that, because I want you to know that Paul knew Isaiah completely. Every word of it in Hebrew, probably. He knew how central Isaiah 6 was. He knew Ezekiel 1, and he surely knew Daniel 7. Okay? He knew it all. All right? With that in mind, now as he went on his way, he suddenly approached Damascus and suddenly there was a light from heaven flashed around him. 
And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will do, and, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now, take a look at this briefly, okay? We just think that Paul's had a weird experience and he's gotten saved. That is not what's happening. Paul has seen a vision of an exalted Christ. We have the connection with the lights. We have the connection like Isaiah and Ezekiel where having seen the vision, he sent out. Can you imagine the awareness that went through Paul's mind in that one moment where everything changed? Everything changed in his life in a moment. He knew in Isaiah 6 there was one who was high and lifted up. He knew in Ezekiel 1 that in that scene the glory of God filled the temple and filled the earth and the, all the angelic beings were there. And he knew that in Daniel chapter 7 there was one who was a man who was going to receive the glory of the kingdom. And he saw the same vision. Isaiah didn't see two distinct people. Isaiah didn't see the glory that Ezekiel saw. Ezekiel saw glory beyond what Isaiah saw. Ezekiel saw the relevance of the angelic beings. Ezekiel saw the relevance of a spirit that Isaiah didn't see. He saw more. Dan, neither of them saw what Daniel saw, which is the two distinct people. And when Paul sees it, he sees that he doesn't just see one like a son of man. He says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus, whom you persecuted. And in that moment, in that heartbeat, Paul realizes that the vision of Isaiah was of Jesus Christ. That the vision of Ezekiel was Jesus Christ. That the vision of Daniel was of Jesus Christ. In that heartbeat, Paul saw that the kingdom of God that he knew so much about was going to be established by Jesus Christ. That it was Jesus' kingdom and that it would never end. In that heartbeat, Paul saw his mission. And like Isaiah... He sees that the high and exalted one is the way to salvation. Like Ezekiel, he sees that the methodology of the high and exalted one is by means of the Spirit. Seen that in Paul's writings, haven't we, in Ephesians and Colossians? And like Daniel, where Daniel says, every tribe, every nation, every language, Paul gets his his mission to go and take the gospel beyond the Jews to the Gentiles as well. Paul put it all together. Jesus was the high and exalted one. Doesn't that put a different shine on Philippians chapter 2? This is who... Paul, Paul realised that he claimed to be a worshipper of God. We're going to talk all about this in chapter 3 as well. This is our foundation now for going into chapter 3. But Paul, 
was a worshipper of God, so he thought. He was a worshipper of God, and here he is worshipping God, so he thinks, and at the same time he's actually persecuting the one who, who God is going to lift up highly, the one whom God is going to give all power, all authority, all dominion, and whose kingdom will never end. The one who is God himself. And that, what Paul understood in that moment, is what he's communicating to us in Philippians chapter 2. Isn't that good? <laughs> I love this stuff. Hey, back to Isaiah. I have something else I've got to show you. Back to Isaiah. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. So Isaiah 45. In Isaiah, as I've said, we've had the five chapters. Uh, our first five chapters of Isaiah sets the scene. Chapter 6 is where we have the calling of Isaiah. He sees the vision of God, high and exalted, who we now know is Jesus Christ. And the high and exalted one, he's in the presence of that one, he's aware of his own, his own uh, unworthiness, and he receives, by the means of the coal, distributed by the, the living creature, he receives salvation. He receives forgiveness for his sins. And that then, is, that's just a vision. It didn't happen. Remember, this is a vision. He saw something to happen in the future. And... That's what the book then proceeds to be about. And we talked again already about the suffering servant that's going to be revealed towards the end of the book. Now, we're going to jump into chapter 45. Now, in chapter 45, we have a section kind of towards the end of that chapter which emphasizes that Yahweh, remember, the name of God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is a, not just the word Adonai, which means Lord. This is Yahweh, which is the name of God. Okay? And God is going to show himself to be the only God. In verse 18, for thus says Yahweh. Notice the capital letters for Lord. Thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens. He is God. Okay? So who's this Yahweh? He's the one who created the heavens. He's God. Right? Who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. That's crucial. God wants the earth to be inhabited. Why? Because the earth, remember, is going to be filled with his glory. And so, I am... Yahweh, and there is no other. How many gods? One God. Who is it? It's Yahweh. There's no other God. He's the one God. He creates. It is him. It is nobody else. No one else gets praise. No one else gets honor. No one else gets worship. One God, Yahweh. He's the creator. Then we have Daniel 7. We're not finished with Isaiah 45. Stay there. But we got Daniel 7, and we see the Ancient of Days giving all authority, all power, all honor to one like a son of man. And yet, he says, I'm the only one here in Isaiah 45. Keep that problem in your minds as we read on. And again, this is interesting in the context here, but let's turn to verse 22, because I'm running out of time. Let's turn to verse 22. And... No, let's, let's go back to... Uh, 
I don't want to get too drawn into the eschatological nature of either eye. Let's go to verse 20. Assemble yourselves and draw near together, you survivors of the nations. Okay? So timing-wise, this is end times. The nations have, have suffered and they've been judged. The judging of the nations is Matthew 25. The judging of the nations is Joel chapter 2. Uh, or 3, 3, I think. Um, and this is the end of, end of days. And the survivors of the nations. Of nations, by the way, is the same Hebrew word that means Gentiles. Gentile survivors. They have no knowledge who carry. Uh, they have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a god that cannot save. So the judging of the nations is very much on the basis of which god they worship. If they have idols that they worship, those idols can't save them, they're not real. Again, context is only one, it's Yahweh. So he says to them in verse 21, declare, present your case, let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago, who declared it of old, was it not I the Lord? This judgment of the nations, this, this isn't new. I, I'm I, I the Lord, I always have my plan. Look what he says, there's no other God besides me. A righteous God, here's this crucial in Isaiah, a saviour. Who's the saviour? It's Yahweh. Is there any other God? No. Who does the saving? Yahweh. Any other gods any good for saving? Nope. Who do we go to for saving? Yahweh. It's pretty clear, is it not? There is none besides me. So there's our context. Now let's get to the good bit. Verse 22 of Isaiah 45. Turn to me, because no one else can save. You turn to me, you turn to Yahweh. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, the Jews and the Gentiles, all nations. We're Daniel 7 again here now. Everybody of all tribes, all languages, turn to me. For I am God and there is no other. Repetition makes a point, if nothing else. By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth it has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. Okay? In other words, this is irrevocable. The only God, the only one who can save, Yahweh himself, this is what he says. To me, who's speaking? That's Yahweh. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Does that sound familiar to you? Only in the Lord, I want to just get the rest of the context, only in the Lord, again capitals, only in Yahweh it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring, in Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So the salvation of Israel, the judging of the nations, all of this will be done by Yahweh. He will receive glory. So this is the context of the judging of all. This is the context of what will happen at the end. What is going to happen at the end? He says, you bet your money on this. This is what's going to happen. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance to me. To who? To Yahweh. Bear that in mind. Should we go to Philippians 2 again? Philippians 2.
Now remember, Paul knows his Bible very well. He's talking to people who know their Bibles very well. They're Old Testaments, I mean, obviously by that. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that is the name above every name. Now come on, we've just read Isaiah 45. What is the name that's above every name in Isaiah 45? Who's the only one? There is no other. What name is it? Every time we read the name, I read it out to you. In the Hebrew, I said what it was. It's Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. That's the name above every name. That's it. That's the name. So at the name of Jesus, you see how... how Strange that might seem to the Jewish mindset. Not the name of Yahweh, at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There's your completeness there. But every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess. When you have the knee bowing, when you have the tongue confessing and acknowledging, you are in Isaiah 45. Paul is pointing us to Isaiah 45. When he points us to a passage, we always need to know what that passage is. And we've read the passage. We know the context of the passage. The passage is, this one God, it's Yahweh. He is the Almighty God. He's the only one that saves. So what's Paul going to do with this little conundrum? Every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. When they came to translate the Old Testament out of Hebrew into Greek, many of you know this, I've told you this before, but I'll say it again. When they came to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, what we call today the Septuagint, they had a problem. There's this word Yahweh that's the name of God. They don't even know how to pronounce it. We're kind of guessing. Some people say Jehovah. It's the same word in the Bible. Yahweh, Jehovah, because the Hebrew language has consonants. The letters are consonants. The vowels were done with little dots and dashes, what we call points. And because they didn't want anyone to use God's name in vain, they didn't put the dashes and the dots and the points on the, on the letters. They just had the four letters. In English, Y-H-V-H. Some people refer to it as a tetragammon, four letters. So you come to translate it to Greek, and how do you translate the name of God when you don't even know how to pronounce it in the language you're translating it from? And what they did is they translated it with the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. And that's why our English Bibles, whenever we have the word Yahweh, has Lord in capital letters. Because Lord was how they translated the name of God. Paul is writing to a community for whom most of them, their Bible, is a Septuagint. It is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Remember Isaiah 45. There's only one God. Who is it? It's the Lord. Who's the only one that can save? It's the Lord. Who's the one to whom every knee will bow? It's the Lord. Who's the one that every tongue will acknowledge? It's the Lord. And Paul says... Here's the conclusion of all of this. 
One day this will happen as Isaiah saw. One day what Isaiah saw in his vision, high and lifted up, the earth filled with glory, that will happen. One day what Ezekiel saw with all the angelic hosts and all the angelic beings and all the glory of God, that will happen. One day what Daniel saw and all the nations coming before God and a kingdom being established to the one like a son of man, that will all happen. And on that day, every knee will bow. As Isaiah said, they'll bow before Yahweh. But here's the twist. They will bow acknowledging that Jesus is Yahweh. He is God. When we, when we separate ourselves from the cults that deny the deity of Jesus Christ, we're not being nitpicky. There's no salvation aside from acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is God. He is Lord. A friend of mine uses the acronym HANDS to remind us of the deity of Christ. H. Jesus, in this passage here, receives the honour that only God should have received. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. That's God's right. Who gets that right? Jesus. A. Jesus was in the form of God. He didn't consider he had to hang on to it, but he was in the form of God. He was there in glory. He had the attributes, A, attributes of God. Now, everyone is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. He's Yahweh. He has N, the name of God. And with him being exalted and having a kingdom that will bring glory to God the Father, he is going to do the deeds that only God can do. And he is the one on the throne who sits on the seat that only God can sit on. It's really handy, isn't it? Five fingers on your hand, H-A-N-D-S. Honour, attributes, name, deeds and seat. If Jesus has the honour that's only due to God, if he has the attributes of God, if he's given the names of God, if he does the deeds of God, and if he sits on the seat of God, he must be God. This is the one that we worship. This is why Paul wrote to him to praise him because Paul, on that road to Damascus, didn't just have a bright light that nobody else saw. He was given the same privilege that Isaiah had, that Ezekiel had, that Daniel had. And he got to see even more than them. And he realized, he put all the pieces together. And he knew who it was who Isaiah had seen. Now, I'm going to take one step back and we're going to finish. Okay, one step back. The whole of this passage has been not about the glory of Jesus. If you look at the whole of chapter 2, it's about how we treat each other. That's what it's about. If you, or I, if, if, if we think too much of ourselves, we've just got to turn to Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11. Get a little glimpse. Maybe turn to Isaiah 6. Turn to Daniel 7. Get a little reminder of who we are. Get a little reminder of who he is. 
and be reminded of what he was prepared to go through for us. And then ask yourself, does it really matter that you're being treated badly? Does it really matter that your rights are being trampled on? Does it really matter that your life isn't what you hoped for? Does any of it really matter? Because he who had the most to lose put it all aside for us and he says, follow me. And for those of us who follow him, who humble ourselves, who acknowledge him, confess him as Lord, who bow before him before that day, then when that day comes, we will be counted with him. And the things that bother us today will not be even in the vicinity of our minds. When we return with him, he comes in glory and everyone and everything on the earth, under the earth, bows in harmony and in unison and acknowledges Jesus is God. He was our creator, he is our sustainer, and he is worthy of praise. And the earth will be filled, as Habakkuk says, with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. God's plan of redemption will come to fruition. And every single last thing that our sovereign God did with our lives will be shown to be good. Because he is God and he is worthy of our praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this just glorious passage of Scripture. I hope, Lord, that we would not just remember this passage, not just remember the truth of this passage, of who your Son is, we also remember its place in the context of Philippians, of us being like him, putting aside our will, our desires, our wants, our rights, humbling ourselves that you might one day exalt us. May the future glory that is to come motivate us in the darkness now. And may we truly be humble servants, living like your son, as you've called us to do. Amen. Amen.